for the very first anniversary after um, our second marriage, my amazing wife made reservations on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas. The Minger Hotel is located about 300 yards from the Hyatt where we stayed on our honeymoon for our first marriage. Did you get all that? It'll be online if you didn't. But about 2002, to give it some context, Gail and I were down on the Riverwalk again, a place where we've been many times since we first were married in 1982. Because we love the Mexican flavor, the artsiness, the always festive atmosphere that's on the Riverwalk. But on this particular trip, we wanted to see something, a little piece of history that we had not seen on other trips, the Alamo. Now, growing up, both of us lived close enough to San Antonio that we had seen it as kids, but we had never done that as adults. And you see it a little bit differently when you go through it as an adult, as you are a kid on some field trip with a school. But one of the things that struck me as we prepared to enter that particular building was how small it is. And the fact that it has such a big place in American history. We took the time to read a lot of the different story tiles that you can, that you can participate with, you know, via the earphones and your own personal guided tour that you can be a part of. We enjoyed the gardens. We put our fingers in the bullet holes. But my most meaningful takeaway from that particular evening, besides seeing the Bowie knife, was a portrait that was near the entrance that had a rather unique inscription. You may not be able to read that, so let me read it to you. It simply says, James Butler Bonham. No picture exists, but this is a portrait of his nephew, Major James Bonham, who's deceased but who greatly resembled his uncle. It's placed here by the family that people may know that the appearance of the man, may know the appearance of the man who died for our freedom. It's placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. I think we of all people in the world get that. Christians get that. Because no literal portrait of Jesus exists that we can show folks. But the likeness of the Son who makes us free can be seen, however, in the life of his true followers. At least that's the point that John's trying to make in this entire letter that we know as 1 John. We're coming to a section here written by the person that we know was Jesus' best friend. He was on the same level as all the other apostles. But like even in our own families, there tends to be people in your own family that you tend to like to hang out more than with others, that you tend to connect with more than others. Love them the same, yes, but, but there's just a special connection. John had that with Jesus. And here in our Bibles in 1 John chapter 2, he has some words he'd like to share with us. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right is born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
all who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. Pray with me, would you? Mighty God in heaven, we love you. And it is hard for us to wrap our our minds around the words that you try to express to us, that you love us. We know if there was ever a time in our world that they needed to see a clear portrait of Jesus Christ, it's now. And so, Father, we're inviting you. Pour into us his image. Commandeer our lives and put his resemblance in us so that we could truly be a living portrait of who he is in this world. Because we really do want people to know of the man who died to set us free. We're not the only ones. We ask you to please be with Barnett Chapel because I know that's on their heart as well. That they too want to become, in an ever-increasing way, more and more formed and shaped and molded in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Would you do that in them? Would you do that in us together? that we might put forth a unified likeness of your Son to the world. Your word promised that it would help them believe that it even matters that he came. And so we're asking together as a family, would you please bless us as one body, loving one Lord, one faith, having one baptism, one Lord and Savior of us all. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. I kind of want to back into this section of 1 John this morning. Because I think at least in my own mind, it's easier to get a handle on what John's trying to say in this section about this portrait of Jesus he'd like to see in us. And if you're a guest this morning, you may not have made the decision to follow Jesus yet. And I want you to know that preachers like me and churches like us can be a huge part of the blame for you not making that decision so far. Now, I know that hardly offends most of the Christians here because we realize better than anybody else that the distance between the Christ follower we profess to be and want to be and the Christ follower we actually are can be huge at times. And that difference, that hugeness of difference sometimes gets on you. Not only do you witness it sometimes, but you also experience the hurt and the damage that our inconsistent walk with Christ can bring. Maybe it wasn't us. Maybe it's been your best friend. Maybe it's been your neighbor. Maybe it's been your parents. Maybe it's been your roommate at college. But in someone who wore the name Christian, in someone who wore the name Christ follower, in someone who wore the name Jesus follower, you saw anything but Jesus in them, at least the Jesus that you know. And you're willing to admit that that's maybe not much, but at least the Jesus you've heard about and maybe studied as a child and maybe even attended church as, you didn't see in them the Jesus that you have seen. What you witness in our actions and in our words hardly bears the resemblance to Christ. And we're, we're owning up to that. We're confessing that this morning as, as we've been asked to do as we come before the Lord's Supper and to look back and reflect on a week that we've been living and say, how does that measure up to cross-shaped living? How does that measure up to the resurrected power that lives within us who are Christ's followers that we celebrate when we come together and enjoy that meal that we we shared in just a few moments ago? We are sorry that you saw in us unkind responses. We're sorry that you saw in us merciless attitudes. We're sorry that you saw in us prejudice. 
and vengeance and arrogance. That's not who our Lord is. That's not who we want to be. What you may not know is that for most of us who wear the name of Christ, we hate it when you see that. We hate it when you witness that, or worse, when you're injured by any of that. But our text is going to reveal what we hope you've come to understand if you truly are here this morning and you're on the fence still about giving your life to Christ. What we hope to be, we're not like yet. That's what the text is going to show us. I'm not working very well. I don't know if I turned this off or... Here we go. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. I'm not like who I'm going to be. I, I, I have a goal, I have an aim to be like Christ, but, but I'm just not. And what the scripture says is, oh, but there's coming a day <laughs> when he appears that not only will I see him, and not only will you see him, but here's the best news of that particular text. I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be like him. My attitudes are going to be like him. My words are going to be like him. The kindness that I hope would be in me will be a part of my life. It won't just be something that I study or something that I teach about, but it will be a part of who I am. And those of you who've been let down by Christians resembling anything but Christ, please know for us that we're trying to be pure, we're trying to be holy. We just haven't grown into that yet. And yet the scripture says one day, one day, it's going to happen. And there's no one who's looking more forward to that than those of us who are Christ wannabes. Christ wannabes say amen. I think we're tracking on that. I can't wait, guys. And I've been reminded this week as I've studied this text, it's coming. That when he comes, we're not just going to go ooh and ah. We'll be changed to completely being like him. Full heirs to the promises Paul says that we are entitled to as his kids, as his brothers and sisters. And we believe that just as we believe that through the cross, he's made us forgivable. We also believe that through his return, we're going to be made in his likeness. And we believe those words because the best friend of Jesus wrote them down. I don't want to say that lightly. We believe those words because the best friend of Jesus wrote them down. The same friend who was standing there at a cross and witnessed his best friend's execution. Not for any wrong that Jesus was responsible for, but for every wrong and every rebellious action you, my friend, were responsible for. And John's eyewitness testimony tells us that wasn't the last time that he saw his friend as they saw him take down his lifeless body from a cross. No, three days later, just as Jesus had predicted. Now, for John and the rest of the apostles, it was just too much for them to, to be able to accept and to understand. But three days later, anyway, John writes himself, Jesus was raised from the dead. Appearing not only to John, but being touched by John and eating with John and teaching John, not for just a moment as an aberration, but for 40 straight days. And it wasn't just John, over 500 people saw him alive. What was he doing during those 40 days? Scripture tells us he was helping to put into context what his death and resurrection would mean in the lives of all those who trusted what is true. 
and what the Spirit had raised him from the dead dwelling in them would mean. Now explaining that, what John would write in his, his encyclopedia, all right, of Jesus' life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Zane, he was the one up here with the great shoes. Did you notice those? I want one. I, I, I got to get a pair of those. Zane was the one up here with the, with the shoes, but he's also the one with the joy in his step because he couldn't wait to become a Christian. It was all over him last week. He's one of the top five baptisms now in my entire life. Never will forget that day. We were back there in the back, and he was talking about who, was, who had made a difference in his life, and it was just so meaningful and poignant and articulate. I said, you've got you to share with our church. Do you mind doing this? He says, oh, no, be glad to. And sure enough, he stood there in that baptistry and told us about how much his grandmother and his grandfather had impacted his life for Christ. But the highlight was when we went back after the baptism. And we're back there in that room, and he's changing his, out of his wet clothes and putting on his dry clothes, and he just proclaims, and, and, and I'm just telling you, he's one of the most articulate, precocious young men I've ever met in my life. And so out of, the, out of that dressing room, he says, isn't this just a festive occasion? <laughs> Nine years old. And, and Butch and I go, well, yes, it is. He says, you know what this moment calls for? And we said, what? A Ray Charles song. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. You can't make this up. And so I said, well, which one are you talking about? Hit the road, Jack? Georgia on my mind? He said, no, I got a woman. That's my favorite. <laughs> Is that not great? And sure enough, we get done, and we pray with him, you know. We're walking out the door, and he opens the door, and there is Juliana Robertson standing right there. The Lord has answered my prayers. Her and four other beautiful girls were waiting right there. Now, how could you ever forget a baptism like that? Zane is trusting in that Christ that was crucified. Zane is trusting in that Christ that was raised from the dead. And he's just beginning to learn that that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in him. That that same supernatural DNA that, that brought a dead body out of the grave is in him. He does so knowing that everybody who comes in contact with him, however, is not going to applaud that like you did. Not going to be pleased and joyful about that. John reminds us in Zane of these words the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear brother or sister, uh, people in the world aren't going to get you. Some will. You, you living this portrait of Jesus in front of them is going to draw people into Christ. Some, but many pass. Don't want anything to do with that. Thank you. They're not going to get Zane any more than they got Jesus. That's what John's trying to say. It won't make sense to serve others when, when you could be served. It won't make sense to turn the other cheek when yours has been slapped. It won't make sense to bless those when you've been cursed by them. It won't make sense to count others as better than yourself. It won't make sense to love those who aren't loving you back. That doesn't compute to most of the world. And I honestly believe that at least part of the reason, okay, not all of it, but part of it is that they have not seen 
God's love in a human being like many of you have. They just haven't. They've not experienced that love. They haven't been set free by that love like many of you have. And so John reminds us, if I can get to the right scripture, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. And I'd like to ask you to personalize that with me because I think it will matter a great deal more. So everybody read this together. Here we go. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Wow. Now I have no idea what you've been called lately, friend. (laughs) And I'm sure some of you have been called some things other than what we've just read this week. But my goodness, God wants you to leave here knowing you are my child and I am insanely in love with you. Every single one of you. Now we're doing what we can do at this location of Christ's followers to be a portrait of that love, to teach that love, to be a funnel of that love, but some days... I think every single one of us in here who wears the name of Christ struggle with living loved. I do. And part of it, John is saying, is because we've forgotten how insanely loved we are. And so I'm here this morning to remind us. And if I can again, I'd like to show you what God has called each of you. There it is on the screen. He's called you my child. And I'm insanely in love with you. Now, can knowing that you are loved make much of a difference? <laughs> well, the authors of the musical Man from La Mancha believe that it could. I'm curious. How many of you have seen the musical yourself? Man from La Mancha or seen the movie? Okay, not, not that many. When it came out in the 60s, though, it was as hot as any musical ever put on Broadway. It ran for over almost 2,500 straight showings. Won five Tony Awards. It it, it hit the hearts of America in a way that many Broadway plays never had and never will. And I think for those of you who don't know the storyline, it may just make an impact on you at least a little bit. It's the story of Don Quixote. He's that weird character in the picture who jousts with windmills. And he envisions himself as a knight slaying dragons. But the most pointed part of the musical is his relationship with Aldanza. She's the town whore. She sleeps with any and everybody who'll have her. But to Don Quixote, however, she's Dulcinea. He gives her a new name, which means sweet one. (laughs) And when the townspeople hear him calling her that, they just laugh. And they mock him. This crazy knight that calls this woman of the night a tender and flattering name. But Don Quixote never relents. To him, she's always and only Dulcinea. He loved her with a pure love that was unlike any she had never known. And he refused to see her as other people did. How'd that turn out? Well, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but near the end of the musical, Don Quixote is dying. 
And Aldonza is with him, and when he has taken his last breath, she begins to sing the impossible dream. No, I'm not going to sing the song for you. But it is an inspiring song. It dares the human spirit to dream. It dares the human spirit to soar. It dares the human spirit to achieve. And the very last note of the song, as it fades away, someone shouts, Aldonza! And with all the defiance that this woman can muster, she says, my name is Dulcinea. My name is Dulcinea. Now, even if you haven't seen the show, I think the meaning is clear. This despised woman of the night was transformed by the kindly love of a would-be knight. A woman completely without self-respect had come to believe she was a lady, a lady who deserved to be treated with dignity. Well, so that's a play. But can knowing that you're loved that much really change you? Yes. If love from a crazy, kindly night is that powerful, and it's more than just charming, it's more than just sweet, but it actually brought about change in another human being's heart, what would it be? What could it be if in your heart you honestly believed, listen to me, the creator of this universe is insanely in love with you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 says, this being that has no beginning and no end. Acts chapter 17 verse 25 says, this spirit, this father who has no needs. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, this being who is so holy, he can't sin. He's not even tempted by sin. That being loves you insanely. I don't get that some days. I just don't. I don't get that I am his child. I don't get that I'm insanely loved by him very well. And that's why I need you in my life. It's why I need this story in my life that I can get to any time that I need to or want to. Because through you and through this story, I'm reminded often and over and over again that I am his child and that I am insanely loved by the one who has no beginning and no end, by the one who has no needs, by the one who has no sins, by the one who has no age. That person loves me with a love that's literally out of this world. Who is he? Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. That person is insanely in love with you. But I've got to tell you, on most days I don't believe it. And so if you struggle with burying that in your heart and allowing it to, to well up within your heart, please know you're not alone. And I think part of the, the, the biggest reason is, is we know us. We know what we're capable of. We know what our thoughts are. We know us. How could he love us? And so we receive and we almost tattoo in our minds what our teenager says of us or what that arrogant boss thinks of us or what our thick-hearted mate says about us 
or our stubborn, controlling parent has said of us. And I'm asking this morning, would you please be reminded of what your God, your Father has said of you. You're my child, and I'm insanely in love with you. Please, for heaven's sakes, God begs to be heard above the clatter of what other people say about you. And I don't care that what you've been taught to label yourself with that you're a worthless drunk or a hopeless addict or a sexual pervert or a hypocritic churchman or a loser, whatever else name others have called you. God says, I call you my child. And I'm insanely in love with you. And it wasn't a whim. It didn't happen in a moment of pity. This is what even underscores that in a way that I think drives it deeper, at least in my heart, that this was something that God has planned from the very beginning of time. Hear the word of the Lord and, and what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 5, 6. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. And it settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by that love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. I love that. That wasn't an impulse decision. Again, that wasn't because of some moment of, of, of just disaster in my life where God pitied me. No, he's been planning on that from the very beginning of time. Now, I told you before I've had a ringside seat. to what people have done in their lives, it just still stuns me. Where they have gone outside of their home and said, I want to welcome another person into that home who doesn't have one. Whether it be foster care, but particularly adoption. To do that on purpose, to do that willingly, every time stuns me. Now you may have heard in your life of an unplanned pregnancy, but you have never heard of an unplanned adoption. You've never heard of someone who is a foster care person and didn't plan on being that. No, that always takes planning. That always takes preparation. People don't adopt children unless there is something inside them that must adopt a child, has to adopt a child, because there's, there's love in them they've got to give away. And that's what Scripture's trying to say when it uses this word to describe us as his adopted children whom he lavishes his love on. <laughs> We're not talking a little dollop here. We're not talking about a little dabble do you. We're not talking about a little bit of smidgen. We're not talking about a hint. No, the Scripture says God lavishes his love on you. I know you struggle with believing that. Because I struggle with believing it. Now, we don't have any problem believing that, that God is, has got great power, that if he just snaps his finger, the incredible happens. When he just speaks a word, the incredible happens. We have no struggle at all believing God is powerful, but that he's insanely in love with me, that he would lavish his love upon me. We have a huge problem with that because we know us so well. It's partly because how, not just that we know us, but we know love in this world. You've seen this. Most people love something or someone because that thing or that person, in their eyes at least, is lovely. I want to call that because of love. 
because they're pretty, because they're exciting, because they treat me well, because they've got money, because they have celebrity status. I love them. That's most of the love that we know. But what happens when they're not so pretty anymore and they don't have as much money and they lose their celebrity status and they're not as much fun and they're not as much excited? What happens then? We quit loving them. And we've been to them. And along comes God with this out-of-this-world kind of love, this are-you-kidding-me kind of love, this no-one-else-loves-like-this kind of love. The Greeks called it agape. You know that. It's a stubborn, tenacious love that gets a hold of you and won't let go. I just want to call it in spite of love. In spite of. It's not because of love. It's in spite of love. In spite of the fact I don't have this. Or in spite of the fact that I'm not this. Or in spite of the fact that I don't do this very well. God loves me anyway. That's lavish. It's not I love you if. It's I love you even if. And as hard as it is for us to understand, I have an assignment from God to tell you one more time. That's how I love you. You're my child, and I'm insanely in love with you, God says. See, his love is not initiated by your worth. His love creates your worth, if you understand who's loving you. Now, it's hard for me to get that. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around a love that's always wanting to wrap its arms around me regardless, in spite of, and again, because I know me so well. But here's what... Paul says that we've got to do to get that to go down deep in our hearts. And this is huge. The Apostle Paul invites us to look into his prayer life. And wouldn't you know, right at the center of it for the church at Ephesus is this, God, would you help me help them to know how much they are insanely loved. Listen to the text. And I pray, Paul says, that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts. Living within you as you trust in him, <clears throat> may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long and how wide and how deep and how high is his love. And to experience this love for yourselves. Though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know or understand it. Two quick things and the lesson's yours. Would you do your elders a favor? Would you pray for us to have that kind of love? That we would know that kind of love? Not just be it for you, not just show it for you, but would you pray that we get our hearts around that, that the leadership of this church gets this? Would you pray that for our kids? Would you pray that for your neighbors? Would you pray that for our president and our governmental leaders? Would you please pray this prayer? Because it is not easy to wrap your mind and your heart around that kind of love. But it's the foundation of everything that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks as far as how we respond to that love. It's the foundation from which anything that I do in Christ or for Christ comes from. We hope at least the second thing, that you would offer your heart as a canvas for God to paint the portrait of his son's image on. Because we really do hope that when people pass by our lives, they see a portrait of the one who died to set them free. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning 
believing, but asking that you help our unbelief. We just struggle with thinking that the creator of this universe loves us that much. Again, because we know us. And we know the love of this world. It's so superficial. It's so temperamental. It, it just doesn't seem to last very long at all. But to think that you love us without end, that you loved us before we even existed on this planet, that you'll that you continue to love us despite the fact of what we do it takes your name and rubs it in the dirt. Thank you. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for, at the greatest expense of all, showing us in the most visible of ways that you loved us that much. Please, I pray today that somehow these words and those, those thoughts that you've given today through me help revive in our hearts again the reality of the love that you have for us, that we are your children and that you insanely love us. Father, if there's someone here this morning who is, is ready to do what Zane did last week and say, I want in on that kind of love. I've never experienced that kind of love and I want in and I'm willing to trust that Jesus really is the Son of God. I'm willing to trust that you... You gave him on the cross for our sins, that you raised him from the dead, that you'll, you'll place with me a spirit that will help me return that love. Father, if you brought someone here today that wants to do that, would you please give them an extra nudge through the spirit that they need to come up here and die so that you might live in them and that they might, might, they might be this walking portrait of Christ to the world. And if you've brought a brother or sister here today, and Father, they can, just, they can barely even think about this because of the way they've been acting what they've been saying, what they've been a part of that they should have no business because they're a Christian being a part of. Would you help them remember that your mercy is new every morning, that great is your faithfulness, that your steadfast love never ceases? Would you help them remember the truth of that, that you're that insanely in love with them that if they would just lift their eyes and confess their sins, you are right there to forgive their sins and heal their sins and help them, Father, again, be renewed in the power of that Spirit to go walk now in, in a better understanding of your holiness, in a better understanding of your life. Father, if we can pray over them, please nudge them to the front, nudge them to the back for our elders to be able to minister to. But we, we are that deer that's thirsty. And we've come to you this morning and our hearts are panting and saying, would you please pour into us the refreshing love that your word says that you offer us? Would you do that now in a supernatural way for this entire family? In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, let's stand and let's ask him.